Well, over uh, this, this next October, um, we'll mark, this next October 31st, we'll mark the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. So this is 500 years of Protestant Reformation. And in light of such a, celebrating, such a celebration, celebrating the 500th birthday of an era that so rescued and shaped the church, there are a number of books that are coming out this year focused on all kinds of aspects of the Reformation. And one of those new books, which just came out, which I had the joy of reading, is a book that's detailing one of the most famous marriages in the history of the church, the marriage of a German monk named Martin Luther to a nun named Katharina von Bora. Now, one of the beautiful ramifications of Reformed theology taking hold of the church in the 16th century was the way it transformed people's view of marriage. Sadly, under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church in that era, marriage had fallen on hard times. People had a really low view of marriage. Uh, They viewed marriage more as a a necessary evil. One needed to to produce children, a relationship needed to produce children, a relationship to help keep hold on your social status, instead of a relationship in which to show biblical love and grace and devotion. Marriage had fallen on hard times. And, And in place of that high calling of marriage... Um, the Catholic Church had embraced monasticism and celibacy and, quote-unquote, being married to the church. Uh, in that era, those who took up monastic vows were viewed as the people who were truly godly and who really wanted to love God and please him. However, as the Reformers dug into their Bibles, they pushed back on that teaching. They pushed back on monasticism. They, they argued against it because they saw in it a pursuit of salvation by works instead of salvation by grace alone. They also saw in it a degrading of the biblical picture of marriage and also a fueling of fleshly lusts by pushing celibacy on people who, um, I guess we could say it this way, who weren't necessarily gifted for it. And Martin Luther was one of those men, those reformers who were pushing back against the Roman Catholic teaching on monasticism and proclaiming a biblical view of marriage. However, for Luther, uh, his teaching eventually moved from theory into practice. Luther, a former monk who had lived alone into his 40s, eventually gave in to the call to be married. And for his bride, he chose a former nun, a woman who he himself had helped escape the convent. You couldn't just walk out of the convent in those days, so he had helped her escape from the convent. So that's who he chose to be his wife. Now, their marriage faced all kinds of opposition. Um, Even after years of Reformation being uh, proclaimed and taught in the church, years of watching sound biblical theology sweep across Europe, there were still a lot of folks who found the idea of a former nun marrying a monk as just deplorable. Uh, Several people spoke out against their marriage. Some people said things like their first child would be the Antichrist. Or they accused Katharina of being a witch who had seduced Luther. Or vice versa, they accused Luther of defiling this woman who was really the bride of Christ. Even Luther's own companions in the Reformation, men like Philip Melanchthon, uh, argued against his marriage. They, they worried that the demands of married life uh, would, would put, Luther out, uh, put out of Luther his, his zeal and his passion for proclaiming and preaching gospel truth. But they didn't just face opposition from outside. Uh, they also faced their own struggles. Neither of them married for um, attraction or what we might call romantic reasons. Um, For Katharina, 
to be an unmarried woman in Germany in that era, in the 1500s, that was not an enviable position. Uh, she couldn't become a citizen without being married and without being a citizen. She couldn't go get a job in order to support herself. So she was, having left the convent, she was financially destitute. She was dependent on the kindness of others to support her. And she wasn't only financially destitute, she was also starting to get desperate. Being the ripe old age of 26 at that time period, in that era she was viewed as getting too old to be a bride. So she was running out of time. So marrying Martin, for her, it really rescued her out of a difficult situation. And, and just listen to Martin's own words on why he married Katharina. This is him writing to a friend years later. He said, I didn't love my Katie at the time, for I regarded her with mistrust as someone proud and arrogant, but it pleased God who wanted me to take pity on her. Doesn't that sound romantic? <laughs> I married you out of pity. So all I have to say, their marriage started out with the odds stacked against us, stacked against it. Um, they didn't marry for mutual attraction or really because they even liked each other. Um, and the culture of their day was against them. Several, including their own friends, were against their marriage. So they had a lot of opposition set against them. But in spite of all of that opposition, here's what their marriage did have going for it. It was built on grace. It was built on grace. You see, living in that great era of Reformation, that was the air that Martin and Katharina breathed. Grace. Grace. They had been rescued by grace. They'd been rescued out of a dead religion, and they had found the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had freed them. It had transformed them. And it defined them. It defined their relationship with one another. Their home became a place of grace. A place where serving one another and sacrificing for one another and giving to one another as Christ had given to them, that was their daily pursuit. Gospel, the gospel grace became the atmosphere of their home. And here's what I thought was really cool about reading their story. In that atmosphere, the atmosphere of grace, love flourished. In that atmosphere of grace, love flourished. Both Katharina and Martin, over their 20 years of marriage, they grew to love one another deeply. They didn't start off that way, but they grew to want, love one another deeply. I'll just give you a little taste of that, especially of the affection that Martin developed for his wife. Uh, in his letters to her, some of which are included in this book, you see him calling her playful little names like Most Holy Mrs. Doctor or the Preacher in Wittenberg. Now, Katharina was neither a professor nor a preacher. But Martin used those titles for her, titles which he himself possessed, in order to praise his wife's intellect and her ability. He saw her as his equal in those areas. And also in his letters, you see his loving spiritual care for his Katie. Uh, in one of his letters, this was a letter was written while he was traveling and his health had taken a turn for, his, for the worse. Uh, you hear him playfully and lovingly addressing her worry over his situation. Listen to what he writes to her. To the holy lady... Full of worries, Miss Catherine Luther. Grace and peace in Christ. I thank you very kindly for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. Since the day that you started to worry about me, the fire right outside the door of my room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mousetrap. Now I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow me up and all of the elements will chase me. Having some fun with her. But then he writes this. Is this the way you learned the catechism and the faith? Pray and let God worry. 
You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or about yourself. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you, as is written in Psalm 55 and many more passages. And what I want you to understand there is Luther there was not simply trying to lecture his wife. He was instead trying to help her with the burden of her concern for him. And he was doing that and along with another of other things he did for her because he loved her deeply. Again, in that atmosphere of grace, his love for her had flourished. And, and as I read through that, that new book, that new book about the Luthers, that, that's probably what stood out to me the most. I saw their marriage as a place where love grew because they let grace loose in their home. They let grace loose. And, and reading through that book, that challenged me. Is that how I'm approaching life in my home? Am I working to build an atmosphere of grace in my home so that the relationships in my home can flourish? Am I building a home of grace? Now, last Sunday, we began talking about this idea, this idea of building homes of grace. And and I asked you that last Sunday about your home. I raised this question. Is your home a place of grace? Is that what would characterize your home? Or would it be characterized by something else? Now, as we explored last week, it's far too easy, right, to have homes that are characterized by the something else. It's far too easy. Um, It's easy to have homes that are simply characterized by busyness and activity. Amen? They're simply characterized by busyness and activity where people are so busy trying to keep up that they don't ever stop and really spend time connecting together. It's easy to have homes that are characterized by busyness. It's also too easy and far too common to have homes that are characterized by discouragement or disappointments. And our homes can become that way because the reality of our relationships are so far from the expectations that we brought in to those relationships. We expected our marriage or we expected parenting to be far different than it is. This was not what I was expecting. And so when reality doesn't match our expectations, we become frustrated. And that frustration leads to disappointment and to discouragements. And eventually, because of all that, because of all the busyness and the frustrations and the discouragements and disappointments, our homes can become very wearying and exhausting places. But I got good news. That's not what God desires for your home. That's not what God desires for your home. That's not what God desires for your family. Instead, like the Luthers, God desires us to build a home of grace. To build a home of grace. But what does that mean? What does it look like to build a home of grace? Well, take your Bibles now and turn over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are working through the book of Colossians at a breakneck, rapid speed pace. Um, We're working through this book verse by verse, looking at what God calls us to. And we want you to be able to follow along. So if you don't have a Bible here this morning, just slip up your hand. We've got some guys in the back with some Bibles, so they'll make sure that you get a Bible. But we want you to be able to follow along. So Colossians chapter 3. And let's, let's look again at this, these passages which show us the kind of home that God wants for us. Now, now, starting here 
chapter 3, verse 18, and running all the way down through the end of chapter 3 into verse 1 of chapter 4, we, we find what scholars call a household table. A household table. And what that means is these verses here, they read like a chart or a table addressing all the various roles that you would find in the first century household. And, and for each role, each duty, uh, for each role we see a duty, a command that is given here in the text. Let's look at the text. It begins verse 18. Wives, and here's the duty, here's the command, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And he addresses husbands. Husbands, here's the duty, here's the command. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Verse 22, bondservants, which was a role in the first century household. That was a reality in the first century home. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then lastly, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, those are all the various relationships husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, and servants that would be found in the first century household. And here, Paul addresses each member of the household, each person in those various relationships, giving them commands that they are to follow. But here's the thing I want you to really grab a hold of. This list is more than just a series of commands. This list is more than just a series of commands. You see, this list, because it's found in this letter is really all about grace. It's not just a list of commands. It's really this list found in this letter is really all about grace. And I say that because as we've seen, as we've studied through the book of Colossians, Paul, he's proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, a sufficiency that we partake of how? Yes, by grace. We partake of the sufficiency of Christ by grace. Paul, throughout this letter, he's been driving home this truth. Jesus is enough, right? He's sufficient. And we have been given Jesus and his fullness, not not by working for it, not by trying to earn it. Remember chapter 2? Not by going back to the Old Testament rituals, not by trying to keep all these man-made rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We are given it not because we're good little boys and good little girls. We are given it because, as Paul says in the very opening of the letter, we're given it through the grace of God in truth. So we have the fullness of Christ through grace. It's a gift that we don't deserve, but we're given it anyways. And that's what grace is, getting what you don't deserve. But in light of that reality, the reality of the grace that has been shown to us, we are then to live lives, because we've been shown this grace, we're to live lives of grace. To live lives of grace. And that's really what chapter 3 has been all about. It's been about how we now, in the power of grace, live lives of grace. It's about how we give to others more than they deserve because that's what's been given to us. And here in our text for this morning, Paul is showing us what it looks like when that grace comes home. What it looks like when that grace comes home. And here's the thing it doesn't look like, please understand this, it doesn't look like waiting until the people in our family are deserving of being treated this way, the way described in this text. 
It doesn't wait until, well, when they're worthy of our submission or when they're worthy of our love or when they're worthy of our obedience, then we'll give it to them. That's not grace, is it? That's making them work for it, right? That's different. Instead, what it looks like is saying to one another, and I brought this up last week, say it again this morning, I'll probably say it in the weeks ahead, but it looks like saying to one another, as part of this family, I will give you more than you deserve, which is grace. I will give you more than you deserve. Through the power I don't deserve, God's empowering grace, for the glory of the Lord I could never deserve. The Lord who has shown me such amazing grace. It's saying to one another, I will give you more than you deserve through the power I don't deserve for the glory of the Lord I could never deserve. It looks like saying to one another, I will show you grace and the power of grace for the Lord of grace. And that's what this list found in this letter is really all about. Don't just see it as a list of commands. It's a call to show grace and the power of grace for the Lord of grace. It's all about grace. It's about building homes of grace. And last Sunday, we began looking at how we do this. We started out by talking about the most important relationship in the home. What's the most important relationship in the home? The marriage relationship. The relationship between the husband and wife. And we started talking about that first because that's where Paul starts in this text. And Paul starts there because it is. It's the most important relationship in the home. The marriage relationship. The marriage relationship, please understand this, it's the foundational relationship in your home. It is the fount from which all of the other relationships in your home drink. It is the model which all of the other relationships in your home pattern themselves after. Brothers and sisters, if you neglect that relationship, wow, we have kids, we're so busy, maybe we'll get around to our marriage when we have time. If you neglect that relationship, if you don't, Focus on the marriage relationship, keeping it healthy and sound as God intended it. The rest of the relationships in your home are going to suffer for it. The rest of relationships in your home are going to suffer for it. So that's where we started, and we started there because Paul started there, and Paul started there because that's the most important relationship in the home. And Paul not only begins with a marriage relationship, but look at the text. He first focuses on who? Okay, it's okay for you to talk back. It's all, it's all right. I'm not going to get offended. Yeah, the wife. He, he addresses the role of the wife. He addresses the one, as I pointed out last week, who probably has the most challenging calling in the most important relationship. And I say it's the most challenging calling because a wife is being called to do what? What's the text say? Submit. She's being called to submit to her husband. And this is the grace that she is to give to her husband. This is the grace that's to be given by a wife. She is to, as we talked about last week, willingly, and we have to force her, she is to willingly, voluntarily, place herself under the leadership and direction of her husband. And it's grace, God's commander to it, but she's showing grace because she is willingly and voluntarily placing herself under one who is her equal. Right? Amen? Guys, amen? She's placing herself willingly, voluntarily under one who is equal. And not only is she placing herself willingly, voluntarily under one who is her equal, but it's grace because she's placing herself willingly and voluntarily under one who is a flawed, fallen sinner. Amen? Ladies, amen? <laughs> yeah, but you're placing yourself under the leadership of someone who's flawed, fallen, a sinner, who is not always going to lead you like you should lovingly be led. So you're showing grace. This is the grace you're to show. But here's the thing. As a Christian woman, you are empowered to show this grace through Christ indwelling you, through your union with Christ. 
You're empowered. It's not, it's not something you can do in your own strength. We talked about this last week, ladies, right? You're going to look at this and go, man, this is impossible calling. And it should feel that way. Because guess what? You need Jesus. And so as he empowers you through your, your union with him, you are then able to show this grace. And this might just sound like crazy talk. But you should also be delighted to show this grace. Because it is an expression, showing this grace is an expression of, of your surrender and your submission to the leadership of Jesus Christ. And guess what? As you submit to Jesus Christ, he will always lead you well. Amen? He will always care for you. He is a perfect leader. He is not your equal. He is your Lord. And so you should delight to surrender to him because you are safe in his hands and he will always lovingly, perfectly lead you. So a wife is called to show grace in the power of grace for the Lord of grace. And we walked through that in detail last Sunday. Now this Sunday, we're going to look at the flip side. We're going to talk about the role of a husband. We're going to look at the grace that he is to give to his wife. And what grace is out? Again, look at the text. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Paul puts it clearly and succinctly, doesn't he? Husbands do what? What does it say? Husbands love your wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the grace that a husband is to give to his wife. But what does that mean? What does Paul have in mind when he tells husbands to love their wives? What's Paul driving at in that statement? Well, here's the thing. He's not driving at what our culture commonly thinks of when it thinks of the term love. Often in our culture, when people talk about love, they simply mean, (laughs) very often they simply mean, Having strong feelings for someone or something. We say things like, I love baseball. And maybe you don't say that, I say that. <laughs> or we say things like, I love your new home. Or we say things like, I love the way you make me feel. But when we're using that term that way, what we're simply describing are strong feelings. A strong emotional response of appreciation or admiration or desire towards someone or something. And so we might be tempted to think that's what Paul means here. Husbands, have strong feelings. Husbands, have strong desires for your wife. But the word that Paul has chosen to use here, the Greek term that's translated as love, means far more than just to have strong feelings or strong desires. Uh, In the Greek language, there's actually multiple terms, multiple words for love. There was eros, which spoke of erotic or sexual love. Then there was phileo, which was used of the love of friendship or companionship. And there was a storge, which speaks of a natural affection or, or a fondness that we have towards someone or something. But Paul doesn't use any of those words here. Instead, he uses the Greek word agape or, or agape. And that type of love, agape love, is far beyond feeling or sexual desire or the commitment of friendship. This type of love, agape love, is a sacrificial self-giving love. It describes an attitude and an action more so than a feeling. It's a willingness and a pursuit of self-sacrifice for the good, the well-being, and the needs of another person. It's sacrificial love. And here, Paul is saying that that is the grace a husband, look at the text, a husband is commanded, commanded to show his wife. You see, Paul here, he uses the verbal form, actually an imperative of this word agape. 
This is a command. So brothers, here's what I want you to understand. This is not optional. This is not optional for a husband. This is not, if you really feel like it today, sacrificially love your wives. It's not, if she makes it easy today, or if she is particularly lovely today, or if everything lines up in your schedule and all of the stresses of work dissipate, then sacrificially love your wife. Look at the text. There's no conditions here. There's no optional clauses, right? It's just a powerful, clear command. Husbands, love your wives. Men, I want you to understand, this is an act of obedience to our Lord Christ. This is an act of obedience to our Lord Christ. This is what our Lord Christ has called us to do. You want to know what God's will is for your life? People ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Well, if you're a husband, here it is. Here's God's will. Black and white. Husbands, love your wives. But brothers, just as I said to the ladies a few moments ago, This should also be a delight for us to pursue. This should be a delight for us to pursue because we are doing something in response to the grace that has been shown to us. And by that, I don't mean the grace shown to us by a wife in submission. I mean the grace of God shown to us through our salvation. We should delight, man. We should delight to reflect in the glory of our Savior by showing grace to others as he has shown grace to us. I've been so overwhelmed. I want to show grace to others. And here, we're called to show the grace of love to our wives. We are to sacrificially, sacrificially give ourselves for her good, her well-being, and her needs. But what does that really look like? What does it really look like? Here's the thing, guys. Um, We don't have to speculate. (laughs) We don't have to wonder. We don't have to get together today and try to pool all our wisdom and try to come up with an answer because God has made it very clear in his word what it looks like. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And here in 1 Corinthians 13, we find Paul giving us a powerful, powerful description of the grace of love. Here he unpacks for us what this Uh, agape love really looks like. And he starts, look at verse 4. He starts in verse 4 by giving us what I'll call a positive picture of love. Look what he says. Love is. It's giving us a positive picture. Love is what? What does it say? Love is patient and kind. So that's what it looks like. That's his opening positive picture of love. Love is patient and kind. And and Paul here, he wants us to see, I think, both the, the passive and the active manifestations of love in our responses to other people. Passive and active. First, he talks about patience. That is to be our passive response to others. Guys, this is to be our our passive response to our wife. We are to be patient with her. We are to show long-suffering, as the, the old King James put it. What does that mean? That means we're to bear up. We're to bear up under the difficulties or frustrations or insults or, or disappointments that might be taking place in that marriage relationship. We are not, we are not to respond to our wives with selfish anger or harsh language or by just emotionally shutting off. Instead, we are to show them the loving grace of patience. That's to be our passive response. But next, Paul mentions kindness. Love is patient and kind. 
And that's, that's the active response of love. Now, what kindness describes, kind of describes, and I found this in a commentary, I really liked it. One commentator put this way, kindness describes reaching out with deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. That's good, isn't it? Reaching out with deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. Kindness, it's a word we use a lot, but sometimes we don't really understand what we're talking about. That's what this word is speaking about. Reaching out with deeds of compassion and mercy. That means, men, we are to reach out to our wife with deeds of compassion and mercy. That means we're to do things that lift the burden off of our wife. We're to lead her in a way that cares for her and ministers to her and helps her. Removing the burdens from her, not sitting back and just watching her struggle. Oh, she's got her stuff to do, I got mine. That's not the way Luther treated his wife. He didn't just sit back and watch her worry about his health and say, well, she shouldn't worry. What do you do? Wrote a letter, loving, playful letter. But he wrote it in such a way as he was trying to remove that burden of worry from her. And that's what love looks like. It looks like being patient and kind. So let me ask you guys, how are you doing so far? Think about yourself. How are you doing in those two categories? Patience, kindness. Will that describe the way that you are with your wife? Now, I'll tell you, we're just into Paul's opening salvo here. I imagine there are some of us guys that are already feeling like that opening salvo has us sunk. Oh, I'm not very patient. Not very kind. But let's keep working through this description. Here, after the opening positive picture of love, Paul then adds a whole list of negative descriptions, a list of things that love doesn't do or isn't like. Look at what he writes, guys. Second half of verse four. Love does not, what? Envy. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I'll tell you, I imagine for some of us husbands, as we read through that this morning, we're going, shoot, I'm already dead in the water. Because this list looks a lot like me. And guys, that's the sad truth. Sadly, it does look like way too many of us. Too many of us husbands, even in the church, are envious towards our wives. We are jealous of their time or jealous of their affections. Why don't you focus more on me? Or or we envy their situation saying stupid things like this. She's got it so much easier than I do. Or we become boastful. Going on and on about how difficult our life is. Man, this job. Just bragging about how many burdens we have to carry. Or how amazing we are at carrying those burdens. Or about how blessed she is to have a husband like us. You know that comes up in the arguments, right? You know there's a lot of guys that are worse than me. You can have one of those. Boastful. When I'm arrogant and rude at times. Talking down to our wives. Acting like we, we know everything or we have thought through everything. Why can't you figure this out? Don't you know this? It's so simple. That's arrogance. That's rudeness. Some of us are always insisting on our own way. And when we don't get it, we become irritable 
and resentful. Our wife has to tell our children things like, we'll give your dad some space today. He's having a really rough day. Because he didn't get his own way and he's irritable and resentful. But brothers, here's the thing. That's not the way we're supposed to act because that's not what love looks like. That's not what it looks like. Instead, here's what it looks like. It looks like finding joy in God's ways. It looks like finding joy in God's ways. And I think that's what verse 6 is talking about when it says, Love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. You see, a truly loving heart is one who has turned from trying to make the world all about me, an attitude which leads to wrongdoing like being envious and boastful and arrogant and rude and irritable, all those things described in verses 4 and 5. Instead, a loving heart has learned to rejoice with the truth. It finds joy in God's ways, not in our selfish, sinful pursuits. Instead of building life around me, a loving heart has learned to build life around God and his ways, rejoices with the truth. And, and that manifests in a far different approach to life. It looks like what Paul describes there in verse 7. He says, love does what? Love bears all things. You see, because we find our joy in the truth, in God's ways, not our selfish pursuits or not our circumstances, then we bear up because we're finding our joy in the right place. We bear up. We keep going. We don't say foolish, stupid things like, I've had it up to here with her. I can't take any more of this. Done with this marriage. Done with her. We don't say things like that because love bears all things. Love bears all things and it believes all things. Now that there in the text, love believes all things, that's not talking about this naivety that only thinks optimistic, positive thoughts and just ignores reality. It's not talking about the power of positive thinking. No, instead it's talking about, about the faith that is to undergird our love. A faith that continues to cling to God, continues to cling to his promises, continues to cling to his sovereign working in our lives. It believes all of those things. And so from that faith, love flows. Continues to cling to the truths of God. And that's why, as Paul says next, our love hopes all things. We don't don't shrink back in the midst of marital difficulties and conflict because we know the one in whom our hope is found, and it's not found in our spouse. Amen? Our hope is not found in our spouse. Our hope is not found in the circumstances surrounding our relationship. Our hope is found where? In Jesus Christ. And we, we rejoice in the truth. And he is the truth we rejoice in. So our love then, full of hope. Again, not this optimistic naivety, but a gospel hope that knows who is in control. And that he's working all things for his good purposes. Our love then is full of that hope. And from that reality, from the faith and the hope that undergirds our love, our love endures all things. Guys, we don't bail. We don't bail. We don't give up. We aren't the kind of leaders that turn tail. We aren't the kind of leaders that check out on our family. There are guys who are there, but they're not really there. You know what I mean by that? You're going through the motions, but they've checked out. But that's not what it means when love endures all things. We don't check out. Instead, we love. We keep loving. We keep loving our families. We keep loving our wife. And that is the grace that we are to show to her. We're to be patient. 
We're to be kind. We're to be putting off being self-focused and irritable and arrogant. Don't say, well, that's just the way I am. No, it's not. In the flesh, yes. As a new creation in Christ, you're called to be different. So we're to put those things off and we should lead her well, rejoicing in the truth, showing her a love that doesn't give up, doesn't shrink back, because it's built on the foundation of faith and hope in Jesus Christ. That's the way we are to love. That's Paul's description of this love. But here's the thing, brothers. You might say, well, Ryan, that's enough for me today. I think I had 50 minutes last week preaching on the role of the wife, so I got to at least do at least twice that this morning, right? Because our heads are a little thicker. But you might say that's a, that should be enough. But here's the thing. Paul, in, in his writings, he's given us more than just this convicting, challenging description of love. He's also pointed us to the model, the model of this grace of love. See, around the same time that Paul was writing this letter to the church in that city of Colossae, he was writing another letter, a letter to another group of believers in a nearby city called Ephesus. And let me show you what he said to the husbands in that church. Turn over to the book of Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me show you what Paul said to those guys. Ephesians chapter 5. Look what Paul writes here. Starting verse 25. He says what? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Sounds familiar, right? But then look at what he adds. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. So there's, there's our model, brothers. There is the model husband. Each and every Christian husband is to pattern his love after. He is to love his wife just like Christ loves the church. But what does that mean? How does Christ love the church? Ready for this, brothers? He loved the church through extreme sacrifice. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ did what? What does it say next? And gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. And that wasn't just a metaphorical, figurative, giving himself up. That wasn't simply watching her HGTV program or watching her romantic comedy when the baseball game is on. That's not the kind of giving up that's being described here. No. Jesus literally gave up his life. He got up on the cross for his bride. He sacrificed his very life for her. And guys, don't let this just skip by. That's our model. You might have had a great dad, but ultimately he's not your model. You might have godly men in the church that you can look around and say, well, that's a godly. That's good to have. But ultimately, they aren't your model. They're not my model, ultimately. Who's our model, brothers? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, husbands, love your wives. But notice, and this is so very important, Christ's sacrifice for his bride was a sacrifice with a purpose. It was a sacrifice with a purpose. And I I say that because I want you to understand that Paul isn't just calling husbands here to lay down and be the doormats of the marriage relationship. He is calling for extreme sacrifice, but it is sacrifice with a purpose. And what's the purpose? Look at the text. Why does Paul say that Christ gave himself up for her? Verse 26. That he might what? That he might sanctify her. Make her holy. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, this is a call to sacrifice for the purpose, for the purpose of sanctification and holiness. This is a call for you to sacrifice yourself as a husband for the spiritual good and the spiritual growth of who? Of your wife. That's what our model did. That's what we're called to do as well. Say some hard things to some of you brothers here. But I say this because I love you. For some of you men, giving up yourself for the spiritual good and growth of your wife is going to look like drastically changing your schedules. It's going to look like drastically changing your schedules. And I say it because I, I know you guys. Some of you are way too busy with other things. You're so busy with your jobs, you're so busy with your hobbies, or so busy trying to do everything for everybody else that you are neglecting the spiritual care of your families. And your wife and children have really just been left on their own when it comes to growing in their understanding of God and his ways. But brothers, and I say this because I love you, that's got to change. That's got to change. You need to be willing to die to those other things. And what I mean by that is not let them rule your life anymore. To sacrifice them as the driving pursuit of your life. Your life is not all about your job. I thank you for providing for your family. But some of you guys are getting out of balance. You gotta be willing to sacrifice those things as the driving pursuit of your life for the spiritual good and growth of your family, for the spiritual good and growth of your wife. Brothers, if you have no time to spiritually lead her, then your schedule and your priorities are wrong. Anyone wanna give me an amen on that one? But it's the way it is. If you have no time, then your, your priorities, your schedule's wrong. You're not loving her like Jesus loves the church. But for some of you brothers, it's not your schedule that's going to need to change, it's your anatomy. And what I mean by that is you're going to need to grow a spine. And I'm saying that because I love you. But what I mean by that is you need to stop being so passive And just letting your family go wherever they want. That's not the way that Christ leads the church. He doesn't say, well, you go do your thing, I'll go do mine. He leads. That's how he loves. He leads. How does he lead? He walks after the will of his father. Amen? He obeyed his father. And then what does he say to us? Come, follow me. Right? He, he leads. He shows us how we're supposed to go. And some of you men need to take up courage and do the same thing. You need to die to fear. Well, she's going to get upset if I do that. It doesn't matter. Lead. Lead her. Lovingly lead her. Say, we're following Jesus and this is the way we're going. Our spine. Be man, lead your home. Now, please don't misunderstand what I mean by that. I don't mean bully. I don't mean bossing people around. Instead, here's what it looks like to lovingly lead your home. It's described there in verses 28 and 30. 
for us. Look at what Paul says. He says, in the same way, the same way as Christ loves the church, husbands should love their wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because she's part of you. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But what do we do? Nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. That's what it looks like, brothers. It looks like spiritually nourishing your wife. Leading her in the truths of God that will help her to grow and say, Christ is my joy, not these other things. It's nourishing her. It looks like like cherishing her and caring for her as you would your own body, your own soul. That's what it looks like. Again, I think we saw a great example of this in that letter from Martin Luther. As he lovingly confronted the worries in the life of his wife, what did he point her to? Did he say, just stop worrying? No. He pointed her to God's sovereignty and to God's word. Truths which he knew would nourish her because they were already nourishing his own soul. See how that works? So because he cherished her like his own body, like his own soul, he showed her that love by, by lifting that burden of her concern. Don't worry about me. Pray and let God work. And then he pointed her to the truth of the word. And so, brothers, we need to be willing. We need to be willing to sacrifice. To lay down our own lives. Our wants. Our desires. Our comfort. We need to die to those things. To show that kind of love for our wife. A love that is focused on nourishing them in sanctifying truth. Showing them how much we cherish Cherish that. And that leads me to the last aspect of this grace that we're to show to our wives. Turn back to Colossians chapter 3. Kind of gone out a little bit. We're going to come back, back to Colossians now. Here in verse 19, Paul was really given a twofold command. He says, husbands, love your wives, and what? Do not be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, to be harsh with them, or as some translations put it, to be embittered against them, that's really the antithesis of all the things we just talked about. That's the antithesis of all the things we just talked about. It's the opposite of what we've just seen. It's refusing. To be harsh with them is refusing to be patient and kind. To be harsh with them is being unwilling to sacrifice for her good. To be harsh with her is to choose not to nourish her. And cherish her as we would our own body. To be harsh with our wives is really a decision to withhold grace. It's a decision to withhold grace. And when that happens, brothers, um, it reveals that we've forgotten why we're showing grace in the first place. We've forgotten why we're showing grace in the first place. I want to ask you guys some questions, okay? For the husbands. And these are questions I aimed at my own heart, so after I've shot them at myself, I get to shoot them at you, okay? But here's the questions. Why don't we sacrifice more and more consistently for our wives? Why don't we? Why aren't we more spiritually purposeful, setting a pattern of godliness for her and encouraging her to, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ? 
Why aren't we doing more of that? Why doesn't she feel more nourished and cherished by us? Why aren't we more concerned about that? I'll tell you why. Ready for this? It has nothing to do with her. It has nothing to do with her. Our our struggles to love our wife with patience and kindness, our struggles to love our wife sacrificing for her good as Christ does the church, nourishing her and cherishing her. Guys, it has our struggles have nothing to do with our wife. If you think that's the way it is, let me tell you, your wife is not the cause of your struggles in this area. Can I get an amen from somebody on that one? Your wife is not the cause of your struggles to show grace. Instead, your struggles, my struggles, are really revealing of the condition of our relationship with Christ. Our struggles to show grace are revealing of the condition of our relationship with Christ. And brothers, here's the thing. That's good news. That's good news. And here's why I say that. You see, in order to show this kind of love that we've been talking about this morning, in order to remedy our weak agape, in order to, to remedy our, our sorry excuse for Christ-like love, we don't need for our wives to wait for all our wives change. We don't need to wait for them to change. We don't, we don't need to say, well, if you just did, I'd be a more loving husband. No. We don't need for our wives to change, to get better, to get that submission thing down, or any of that. We don't need to wait. Instead, we remedy our weak agape by leaning in to Jesus Christ. That's how we fix this. We, we lean into Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is we, we experience the power of his grace and his love towards us. And then, then we let that love, that grace, fill us and overwhelm us and then flow out of us into our marriages. You see, when we're struggling to show grace, it's revealing that our struggle is really rooted in our understanding to show our understanding of the grace that's been shown to us. That's the root of it. We're not we're not as full as we should be. It's our own struggle to understand the grace that's been shown to us. So what we need to do to remedy this is we need to go back to the cross. And we need to lean into Christ. What does that look like? Let me give you a personal example. Uh, as I was studying for this sermon this week, you guys might feel like I was picking on you for an hour. Uh, the text's been picking on me all week long. But as I was studying for this sermon this week, um, there were several moments where as I was thinking this stuff through, I was feeling like a failure. And what I mean by that is, is I was reflecting on the way that I was loving my wife as I saw myself pictured in all of those do-nots of 1 Corinthians 13, as I thought about how selfish and how unchristlike I have been towards her. I felt like a failure. I felt like, I don't know what if I'm going to preach this. But then God in his grace, he's so good to us. He's so good to us. He led my heart to the cross. And he reminded me of the forgiveness found there for failures like me. He reminded me that Jesus died upon that cross so that my shame would be removed, my sin would be pardoned, and praise God, my life would not be defined by my failures. Instead, my life is defined by grace. His grace. And brothers and sisters, when you taste that, when the word breaks you down and shows you, oh, I thought it was so much better than this. 
And then it lifts you up with God's grace. and says, yeah, this is how you are, but I love you anyways. That doesn't define you, your failures. Grace defines you. When that happens, that is so incredibly freeing. Amen? So liberating. The joy of knowing that you are forgiven and loved and defined by God's grace, not by your failures, is so liberating. It's like winning the lottery, only a lot better. Amen? So much better. And we've all seen those folks who win the lottery. We watched them on TV. And as soon as they win, they're talking about who they're going to give some of this money to, right? I'm going to give it to charity, going to buy my mom a house, going to go down and give it to some money to the guy at the Quickie Mart who sold me the ticket. You know, they're going on and on about who they're going to give some of this money to. And, and they do that because they are so filled with joy over the new riches that they've been given that they now turn and they feel free to give out of those riches to other people. And here's the thing. That's the way it is with God's grace. That's the way it is with God's grace. When we are so overwhelmed by his love, we are so overwhelmed by his mercy, when we are so overwhelmed by his kindness towards us, we'll find ourselves excited to give out of those riches to others around us. It will overflow out of our hearts into the lives of others around us. It will overflow into our marriages. So brothers, fellow husbands, If you're struggling to show this grace to your wife, it's not about her. It's not about her. It's about you and Christ. So the answer is easy. Lean in to Jesus. Lean into Christ. Set your gaze upon the cross. Be overwhelmed by his mercy and his love towards you. Again, it has nothing to do with her. Instead, it has everything to do with taking our hearts to the cross, filling them with the wonder of God's love towards us, and letting that grace then overflow into our marriages. It's about showing grace and the power of grace for the Lord of grace. That's how we build homes of grace. That's how we build marriages. To look like the marriage of Martin and Katharina Luther. You're getting to see it with them. It doesn't matter how you started. Praise God, amen? Doesn't matter how you started. It doesn't matter what you felt like was stacked against you. Ryan, there's so much stacked against us. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't even matter what your heart says. If you pursue building a home of grace, just watch how love will flourish in that place. Just watch how love will flourish. Husbands, if you pursue saying to your wife, as part of this family, I will love you. I will, I will give you more than you deserve. I will love you like Christ loves the church. I will give you more than you deserve. In, in the power that I don't deserve, God's amazing, liberating grace towards me. For the glory of the Lord, I could never deserve. The one who commands me and models for me this love. I'm going to tell you, brothers, if you say that and you pursue that, just watch what happens in your home. Just watch what happens to your wife. Now, this is not a magic formula. But as the, marriages, as the marriage of the Luthers and so many other marriages have shown us, when grace is let loose in a home... Love flourishes. Love flourishes. 
So brothers and sisters, let's be a church full of countercultural marriages. Marriages like the Luther's. Marriages that stand against the odds. Marriage, marriages that push back against the conventions of our culture. Marriages in which grace is shown by a wife through submitting to her husband. And grace is shown by a husband by truly loving his wife. Actively, sacrificially, purposefully serving her and nourishing her in a way that says to her, you are cherished. You are loved. Let's build marriages of grace in the power of grace for our Lord of grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the high calling of marriage. We thank you for these graces that you have called husbands and wives to show to one another. I thank you for the challenge of these graces for the ways that they expose in us our selfishness, the way the flesh has a hold in us, the way they expose our weakness and our struggles. I thank you that they expose those things because that points us to Jesus. And he's who we need. So I thank you for the way that Your word exposes our hearts, breaks us down, and points us to our hope in Jesus Christ. So I pray for all my brothers and sisters here today. I pray that as we think about this kind of love, and it's not just a love that a husband is to show to his wife, but it's a love that all of us are to show to one another. I pray that as we think about these things today, And really let your spirit examine our hearts. And it would lead us to say to Jesus, Oh Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiving grace to wash away all these failures in the way that I I haven't loved. And I need your empowering grace to help me have victory over the flesh, help me walk in obedience. Help me be so overwhelmed with who you are and what you've done that your love and grace just flows out of my life. Joyfully serving, joyfully sacrificing because we already have everything. We've been given it all in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to think deeply and seriously about these things and go from this place in obedience. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.